So believe it or not, we have two sessions left, this one and, and one more. And I explained to you last week how we finished up the section on false teachers and how uh, we're going to be uh, starting on um, a biblical church and how to know if you're in one, how to find one in, uh, in the fall semester. So these last two sessions, um, really these last three, sharing some things that are on my heart I think will be very helpful uh, to you. So last week we talked about prayer. This morning I'm going to sh- uh, begin to share four uh, principles that deal with relationships, um, how to deal with, with sin, uh, how to deal with forgiveness, how to deal with trust, um, how to tell whether repentance has happened in your life or in somebody else's life and uh, how not to be uh, overly confident or duped as part of the process. I think you're going to find them very enlightening and very helpful because everybody in here is in a relationship to, to some degree, whether that's uh, a parent to, to child, whether that's uh, a husband to wife, uh, whether that's employee to employer or or the other way around. And these are some general principles that have helped me tremendously uh, in my personal life, but also uh, in, in dealing with hundreds of people uh, over 25 years in, uh, in ministry. And one of the blessings that we have, uh, goes without saying, the blessing of Scripture, which is the only thing that accurately reveals God to us. You can't trust your heart. You can't trust uh, experience there. Scripture reigns. The text reigns over everything. Um, but in Scripture, there is a principle that you know well. You probably memorized this verse. It's in 1 Corinthians. There's no temptation taking you, but such which is unique to man. Is that what it says? It's common to man. So human beings are basically the same. You may come from a different background. You may come from... You know, been a believer your whole life, a Christian family. You may come to Christ later in life. But what that principle tells us, that, that scripture tells us, is whether it's Abraham, whether it's Moses, whether it's Noah, whether it's Job, whether it's you, whether it's Charles Spurgeon, whether it's whoever comes after us, our depravity, the way that it manifests, the way that it comes out, and the way we think, the way we behave, the patterns of our life, the temptations that come from our flesh are common. And so we can look in Scripture and see how that comes out and uh, then those patterns. Are, it's one of the reasons that psychology uh, has, ha, if you want to say, has some redeemable aspect to it. Psychiatry doesn't. Psychology just observes human behavior over a period of time and it just categorizes those human behaviors. So. So that would be even biblical. You watch human beings after a long enough period of time, you'll be able to see they behave in these specific patterns, and then you begin to you know, observe them and write them down. The problem with, with that system is it's humanistic, and it doesn't give solutions. So it identifies the behavior and the pattern problem, but it has absolutely no ammo to do anything, anything about it. Uh, or worse, it applies the, the wrong ammunition. It comes at it from a from an unbiblical standpoint. So that's where we're going this morning. I think you'll, you'll, you'll be very helped by it. But first I want you to open your Bibles to Psalm 27. Psalm 27, a psalm of David. My Bible says, a psalm of fearless trust in God. It's the 
theme of my study Bible. And you probably know it well. So we're reading and pray. Verse 1, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, when adversaries and my enemies encamped against me, my heart will not fear. The war rise against me. In spite of this, I will be confident. One thing I've asked from the Lord, that I shall seek. What should you be seeking in life? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to meditate in His temple. For in the day of trouble He will conceal me in His tabernacle, in the secret place of His tent He will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock, And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, whenever I cry with my voice. Be gracious to me and answer me when you said, Seek my face. My heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. A great passage. If you don't have an earthly father or mother or they're wicked. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I should have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Not just in heaven, but here. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And we understand waiting is is eager anticipation. It's not doing, um, it's not being passive or doing nothing. It's eagerly anticipating with hope that God will intervene in His good timing. So let's pray. Father, you are our light. And salvation, and because of that, we have we have no one to fear, and yet we do at times. We fear what is coming, things that we know, or we think we know. We fear things that um, we don't know. Don't know how this is going to work out, or how this is going to you know to to, to turn out. Um, Lord, we we fear things about our health. We fear things about our relationships. We fear things about even you, possibly. And yet you are our light and salvation. And we have no reason to fear who shall bring a charge against God's elect. Um, There's nothing that can separate us. You have removed 
all of the all of the the sin that was between us, you have reconciled us to yourself, and I'm so thankful. Thank you for this um, this psalm, Lord, that just goes through the the throes of of real life, ups and downs, and where to turn our hope. And and um, Lord, the one thing that we seek even this morning is that real life would be in here, not out there. Real life is not what we see, what the world uh, dangles before us. It's, it's living in the kingdom. It's, it's dwelling with brothers. It's hearing your voice. It's gathering in church and in the assembly. Uh, this is what, what it will be like in heaven, yet without sin. So This is reality. Out there is not. So help us to seek that and then be filled with, with joy and faith as we do. Help me. Um, to be helpful to these men. Thank you, Lord, for their effort of getting up this morning to seek you. May you you grant them grace as they have done that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to talk about four simple truths that I think if you get these down and you begin to practice them will transform even the most complex relationships. Sometimes relationships are complex, aren't they? That's a kind way of saying they're messy. Um, and, uh, and they can get even more difficult. It doesn't, doesn't stop. Uh, the older that you get, the more relationships you, uh, that, that you gain or become part of your life, the, the more difficult that they can become, even in the church. So these are some transforming truths that will help you shepherd others, disciple others. If, if you're in a position of dealing with, with people, uh, even in the church, is how you might, uh, maybe you're discipling someone, someone is discipling you, these go both ways. They're bedrock wisdoms that will guide you in the most difficult problems related to, to people um, and their guardrails that will keep us out of the ditch as you try to apply the Bible to relationships. And everyone in here is in some kind of relationship, as I mentioned to begin with, whether it's marriage or family, Christian brothers or, or co-workers. And, and these are some tenets that will help you, uh, help you navigate them. Uh, before we get there, let me say a couple things about, about principles. Um, and so, first of all, we know that the Bible is the only and all-sufficient authority that we have. For, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's breathed out by God. It's, it's God is a verbal God. He speaks and creates. And in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul uses that even for salvation. He speaks through the gospel and he recreates us. He makes us new creations in Christ Jesus. And, and so... So if you're looking for God, you're not going to find God in, in your feelings or in your dreams or your visions or, or your promptings or anything else. You're going to find God in His Word, His written Word. That's His voice. And so we understand that it's, that's our authority and it's all-sufficient and it's profitable, Second Timothy tells us, for teaching, which is what we're doing right now, being instructed, we're learning doctrine, uh, for reproof, uh, when we're going the wrong way, 
and your mother smacked you in the back of the head or your teacher used to do that. It's a correction. Um, and and for, for correction, for guidance, kind of keeping you between the, the ditches, if you will, and then for training uh, in, in righteousness so that we can be adequate and equipped for every good work. So the Bible's authority, we, we believe that. And one of the ways that we prove that is we don't add or take away from the Bible. Rereading some passages in Revelation, given the fact that we're into the visions and the apocalyptic section of Daniel, will be there through the end of uh, end of the the, the book. And um, Revelation gives that promise, um, promise to read the book, but also the warning at the end: don't add to or take away from this this prophecy. Well, that applies to the whole Bible. But there's another passage in. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, where the Apostle Paul shows his perspective about adding to the Bible. Somebody open to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, and when you get there, somebody read that for me. So notice what it says there. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that you may learn not to exceed what is written. One of the ways we prove that we believe the Bible is God's very word and that it's sufficient, that we don't need to add to it or tinker with it, is we prove that by not adding to the text, not adding to the Bible being very careful not to say more than Scripture says, and being very careful not to say less than what Scripture says. So in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul describes himself as a trustworthy steward of the mysteries of God. That's the context there. I am a trustworthy steward, a steward, somebody who's been given charge, in this case by God, and I'm trustworthy. Um, God has given me charge, and, 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 and I'm faithful in carrying out that charge that God's given me. And these are even the mysteries of God. These are things not revealed in the Old Testament that God is now revealing in the New. And the evidence that Paul gives in that passage, that he is a trustworthy steward, is that he doesn't go beyond what is written. He doesn't go beyond the text. So you don't ever want to do that. It's a very serious thing. Whether you're a preacher, a teacher, or whether you're just an average person talking to somebody on the street or your family or your kids or whatever, not to bind their conscience, speak authoritatively about things that Scripture doesn't, doesn't do in the same way. So where Scripture stands, you stand resolute. And you put as much pressure on somebody's conscience as Scripture does. But you never not do more than that um, because that's, that's going beyond the text. So my point is principles are just principles. That's what I'm going to share with you, some principles. I want to deal with some summary truths that can be applied to various contexts. I've applied them in, in my own life. I said in many counseling sessions. 
But just remember, these are general guidelines. They're not absolutes. So kind of think of them like, a, like an orientation. You kind of walk in, in this direction. Um, and you'll see what I mean whenever we get there. They're like little axioms that, that have a lot of things packed into them, and we'll try to unpack those as we, we go along. So they're general guidelines, not absolutes. But I can tell you from personal experience, if you're, you're here messed up or in a broken relationship or know someone who is, these are vital principles to, uh, to grasp. Most of you know my testimony. Um, Tracy and I, whenever I came to the Lord, we were just a few weeks away from, from divorce. Uh, usually share this every time we, uh, we have a new members class. I keep the canceled check uh, from our divorce papers when we filed them in the same frame as my ordination certificate to remind me, a constant reminder of what God can do by His grace. Um, if you'll yield to Him, it doesn't always work out that way, but God was very kind and, and gracious to me. He's very kind and gracious to everyone in different ways. That's His sovereign choosing, but we don't want to be the reason. We want God to be the reason or the other person. Tracy and I entered marriage um, saying we would never do a lot of things. Uh, my parents are still married. Her parents are still married. Even though they're, they, they, we weren't really raised in Christian homes, Christian-like homes, her parents were, were moral. Dad was a diesel mechanic in the coal mines. and um, Her dad was a diesel mechanic in the coal mines. Her mother uh, worked in various jobs. And so... In her family, it was feast or famine. Um, when the mines were working, they had plenty and a lot. And when the mines weren't working, they didn't have much of anything. Um, neither one of them went to church. They weren't opposed to God, but just wasn't part of, part of their life. Um, if you grew up in West Virginia, there are churches everywhere, so you're probably going to go to a youth camp or a vacation Bible school or something like that. And so... Uh, Tracy did when she was in about seventh grade and believes that she came to Christ there in a youth camp and um, but never went back to church after that and neither of her parents took her. So um, I, on the other hand, raised by good parents. My mother was a believer. My dad, I'm not sure. Um, he, uh, I never remember going to church uh, with him. Growing up, my mom took me a couple times a month whenever they were they were in town. So I went to Sunday school, and uh, you've heard how I came to the Lord in my twenties. Um, but but really, not not a, a Christian home. Generally, understanding what it looks like to be married, how married, how to how to relate to one another in a you know in a in a biblical in a biblical way. But, but both of them remained married. And so that was just kind of what you did. I can't tell you that I was a good husband or even was planning on being a good husband, but this is one thing I won't do. We're probably not going to get it. We're, we're just not going to get a divorce. It's be a bad thing. But after uh, a year and a half of daily war, uh, what you, you said with great conviction, I will never do this, goes flying out the window whenever, uh, whenever you... You get in pain. You start thinking, I, I know getting out is bad, but, but it has to be better than this. It's kind of what you start telling yourself. And then you start looking at other people going, 
you know, they made it so I can make it, and Satan loves to put all kinds of lies there. That's what they are. Their lies don't fall for it. Um, but I've been in bad relationships, in this one in particular. The Lord obviously restored that. But here's some principles um, that will help you if you're in a situation like that or in, in another. And the first one you've heard me mention before, but we're going to unpack it a little bit. And it is uh, time and truth walk together. You heard me say that. Time and truth walk together. Now, what do I mean by that? It's a principle that you should, you should understand. It's a biblical principle that you should understand whenever you're dealing with people or dealing with, with relationships. John MacArthur said, whenever a person falls, they don't fall far. And what he means by that is people don't normally fall from a great spiritual height. If you fall into sin, even in your personal life, or you see someone in public life that, that, that is all of a sudden exposed in some type of sin, they weren't on some spiritual high walking with the Lord on a daily basis, and then all of a sudden they just fell off. They have been on the downgrade for some time. They're already pretty close to the ground whenever they're exposed. And so people who are publicly exposed have been on a decline for some time. You might not have been able to see it, so they, they keep up a persona. We all do that. We don't like to expose ourselves, we, uh, even though Scripture says just the opposite. He confesses his for sin and forsakes it shall find mercy. Um, you haven't been able to see it, but that's what's been happening in their heart, but God can. So what's happening whenever they're on the decline before God finally exposes them and then they, 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 you hear the thud, they, they, they fall? Well, God has been calling them to repentance, very gracious over this long period of time before He finally exposes them, and even that is grace. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus, the marks of faithfulness that need to be there for an elder or even, even a deacon, if you look at that list, those are things in your private life. You, you can fake those things to other people. You can't before God or before yourself. And God is very gracious to give you an opportunity to allow you to repent of those private things before He brings them public. Um. God is, is not just going to automatically expose you. He's going to give you an opportunity most of the time, and He's going to do that over and over and over. Give you a chance to repent in your private life. Um, but if you won't, then God will also be gracious to you and bring it public for the same purpose of, of bringing you to repentance. Um, and habitual sin happens over a period of time. Uh, you don't develop a pattern of sin in your life. What's a, what's a pattern of sin? Something that you keep falling to. Something that you keep needing the Lord to restore you from and, and forgive you of. And a pattern of habitual sin happens over a period of time. And so then confirmation of change that you've repented of that habitual sin also happens over time. Just as over time sin crept in and was nursed, the then the truth about that comes out. Time will also confirm what's the reality 
inside of a person, what's actually happening in them. So time and truth walk together. Truth will be born out over a, over a period of, of time. So, so don't be too quick whenever you're dealing with people. You're discipling someone or in a, in a relationship. So a negative example, or the opposite of this principle, is what you see happening in, you know, in the cancel culture, the social media climate. There's, there's a vague accusation uh, about somebody that's uncorroborated, it's really unknown, and then immediately, you know, the lynch mob comes in, the missiles fly, and the guy loses his job or, or whatever it is. There's no corroboration needed, no evidence required, no time given to see whether this even bears out. That's unbiblical. Don't do that. God says bearing false witness is evil. Um, maybe even eviler than whatever they're accused of. So take that very seriously. When you say something about someone, even if it's a heretic, God holds you accountable to your word. So don't bear false witness. Um, on the flip side, when you're dealing with someone and they say they have repented or they say that God has brought change in their life, remember this principle. Time and truth will, will walk together. Don't be too quick to take their word when there's no credibility from their life. Again, remember, the, the decline has been happening over a long period of time. and You have no idea whenever, whenever God finally exposes them if this sin has been nursed in their life for five years. You're just now learning about it. And so whenever they repent or, or they confess, then you think, oh, well, wow, that, they, you know, who am I to judge? And, and they, they've, they've only done this once. But in reality, this has been a pattern in their life for, for, for a really long time. So don't be too quick to take their word when there's no credibility from their life. Don't mistake forgiveness for foolishness. Um, we all want forgiveness. We're all commanded to grant forgiveness. God grants forgiveness to anyone um, who confesses. You know the passage in 1 John. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I am so thankful for that principle, that truth. But the transformation, walking straight after the fall, after the forgiveness, after the cleansing comes. There's no question whether God will forgive you. No question whether He'll cleanse you. No question whether He'll restore you. No question whether He'll return to you the joy of your salvation. That's not being questioned. But the transformation of now walking straight and putting off that old pattern and putting on a new pattern, the truth of what is really happening in your heart will bear out over time. And so when you're dealing with someone, or even you're dealing with yourself, remember that, that principle. It will, it will, become, will become evident. Uh, John MacArthur told, told the story of a man, I've shared this with a number of you before, a man on staff, this was years ago, who left his wife and children uh, for another woman. Um, the guy was in ministry, and he walked away from from ministry to, to pursue an adulteress. And the church, of course, called him to repentance and pursued him. And then after months, nine months, a year, it was a long period of time, 
Um, he, uh, he set up a meeting with John, and, and John obviously met with him and said, said he repented. And in the meeting, um, he was telling John how God had forgiven him. He was obviously very excited about the, about the restoration that the Lord had brought in his life. And, and in this meeting, he was telling John just about how he couldn't wait for God to use him and use this situation in his life. And John's response to him was, well, we'll see. And the man was, was almost incredulous. He, he, was, he was almost offended at what MacArthur said. And you know, it was kind of like, what do you mean? You know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I mean, God's forgiven me. He's, he's restored the joy of my salvation, and I'm walking with him again. And I'll never forget John's response. He, he said to the man, you come in here after months of unrepentant sin, not to mention all of the time that led up to, to the fall. You blew through all the barriers that God's placed in your life to keep you from devastation. You blew through the barrier of your relationship with Christ. You blew through the barrier of your marriage covenant. You blew through the barrier of your children, your testimony, your call to ministry barrier of public reproach that was brought on the name of, of Christ, and, and now I'm supposed to believe your words? We'll see. You know, I hope so. And you say, wow, that seems kind of harsh. I mean, is, is, is MacArthur putting additional things in there that, that, that God wouldn't? John's not talking about forgiveness. It's wonderful, as I said. The minute that you confess to the Lord, the minute that you turn to the Lord, He washes you clean and rushes to you with His grace. But your words are weightless after you have vacated them and emptied them with your life. And so time and truth, truth about what's really happening to you will bear out over time. What's he saying? He's saying if the... What the man said was true, then time will bear that out, and he'll bring forth fruits of repentance. And time and truth will, will rock, walk together. He's also saying when the weight of your, your words have been emptied by your life, it will take some time to get that weight back. Spurgeon said when you become as well known for your repentance as you were for your sin then you can be restored to a position. Not restored to God. You can be restored to God immediately. Um, there's no sin that the Lord can't forgive. Biblically, 1 Timothy 5.22 gives a, a principle to the church in general. Open to 1 Timothy 5.22. probably know this one as well. So when you get there, read that to me. Yes, sir. So don't lay hands on anyone hastily or too suddenly. So that is the idea of putting someone in leadership. I, I believe that's the, the context. But it says when you do that, you actually share in people's sins. So as the church, as elders, are looking for, for other elders, don't be too quick 
to, to affirm someone for, for leadership, uh, put them someplace where, where they may fall, they may blow up, and, and if that's possible, if, you, if that happens, then you're actually if you're putting them there too quickly, then you're sharing and you're, you're partially culpable in not the actions that they take, but putting them there, you know, there, there too quickly. Um, going back to that MacArthur, MacArthur example, when he was going through, blowing through these barriers, when you think about this, God has built into your life and mine graces that hold us in. I mean, the sin, the, the sin nature, the heart, sees them as, as obstacles. I don't like all these all these guardrails. I don't like all these rules. I don't. I don't like all this. this it's you know fencing me in, if you will. And you need to turn that around and see those as graces from the Lord. Um, your testimony, the fact that you don't want to harm your testimony before the Lord, that you care about that, is a is a grace. It, it keeps you from from doing things, doesn't it? Um, your marriage covenant, you made, you made promises, you made vows to another person and to God. And, and yeah, it might be hard to keep those, and you might be sitting there thinking, wow, I, I mean, wish I'd never even made these. But they're there to keep you. Um, what your kids think, what others think, it's a barrier. It's a, it's a guardrail to keep you from going too far. And each time you blow through, one of those things, you get farther and farther down the, the road of sin. Um, one of the last barriers is public shame. Everybody wants to protect their reputation, so you know, don't, don't tell anybody my sin. And if you do, you have to because you hit the wall. It's, it's just a, it's as few people as possible, and that's biblical. You don't need to air dirty laundry for everyone you know, one to know. But when something gets public... When it's out in the open, that's one of the last barriers of, of shame that, that people blow through. Once someone gets there, it's usually you know a bobsled ride to the bottom until they crash totally. Um, and then the consequences of their sin, then they don't care. I don't care who knows, I just want to repent and come back to God. But, but once it becomes public and they don't care about that, they're, they're usually gone until, until the bottom you know, comes. The way back is is uh, is over a period of time and bringing forth fruits of, of repentance. So don't resent. When you find your heart resenting those what other people know about you, or you know, or those guardrails there. Embrace them. They're actually graces of God. Without them, we just run wild. Um, and so you need to watch those things. Truly repentant, you won't mind the time that it takes to rebuild a testimony. If you're truly repentant, you won't care about this principle. I don't care how much time it takes. I mean, I know I was exactly what Scripture says that I am, and I just want the truth borne out over time because I want to honor the Lord um, the Lord again. Um, so that's the first principle. Any thoughts about that one before we go to the second one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. I can remember first coming to Christ, and you know, we had gospel tracts that we we passed out. We we still 
have some here. Um, and uh, I can remember getting one. Just, I mean, I was just zealous. I wanted to see my friends come to the Lord, and we watched NASCAR, loved NASCAR. Um, this was in the days of real NASCAR racing when Dale Earnhardt was still alive. And, and Jeff Gordon, I found a gospel track. It was Jeff Gordon's testimony. He's, a, he's an announcer now, but this is back when he was, he was younger. And it was just, you know, he, he came to Jesus and all of this. And, and I can remember giving those to my friends. Hey, look, you know, I mean, if Jeff Gordon will believe in Jesus, look at him. You can believe in Jesus too. Jesus is a good guy. You know, I mean, well, there's nothing to be ashamed of. And then about six months later, Jeff Gordon divorced his wife, who was the... I didn't know it at the time when he mar- the one he was married to her. She was like Miss NASCAR or something, you know. That might be a, a telltale sign if you know if you you find your wife walking around, you know, half naked in a bikini, posing for other people. It's probably not the best choice of marriage material, but that's probably another another topic. And I and then I mean I'm like, what do I do now? Right? I mean, I'm using Jeff Gordon as a reason for my buddies to, to look. It's, it's not, I mean, it's not uncool to believe in Jesus. And that's exactly the wrong way to, to present the gospel. But that's an example of what you're talking about. We take somebody because of some unspiritual quality or something that the world has exalted them for, and we use them as, a, as an example, you know, to... Too quickly uh, in life. Yes, Mark. Okay. good yeah and I think the really important thing just to reinforce this one more time this is not talking about forgiveness it's not talking about the way God sees you the Lord restores you instantly it's the credibility then of your life and and how do you know whether the Lord has restored you this is where the grace of that time comes in there's the biblical principle that your life will bear fruit Jesus says you'll know them by their, by their fruit. Or 1 John, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, live our lives contrary to what we say, we walk versus what we say, then we lie and do not the truth, as the King James says. So, so there's the principle of what we say and then, and then what we do. So confessing to the Lord and then walking in that repentance and then that fruit becomes evident. And just like in salvation, immediately, whenever you, you repent and, and you, you turn to Christ, immediately you're, you know, the joy of your salvation is restored. You're, you know, you're walking with the Lord as, as if the sin is gone because it is gone. Uh, and you don't care how much time it takes 
for your words to have weight again because now you've you don't it's just your relationship with the Lord you know you're, you've been restored to him because remember if there's been a downgrade for a period of time you've been miserable if you're a genuine believer for however long you've been on the downgrade there's been something in your conscience you know there has been a sand in the oyster and it's you know it's there's a sore under the saddle it's and, and your conscience has been violated. You know it's wrong, and, and, and you, you try to do something, and, and then you, know, you salve it, and then you come back to it, and, and so that's been there. So, man, when that's cleared out of the way, I mean, whew, praise Jesus. I mean, I am I'm so thankful to be restored with the Lord, and, and you don't really care about your reputation at that point. You just want Christ to be vindicated. And, and um, so one of the ways that, that you'll figure out whether repentance has actually happened is how you respond to that, you know. If you go, I mean, come on, babe. I mean, I, I mean, I've I confessed this thirty days ago. How many times we got to go through this? I mean, I told you I'm not doing that anymore. If you find that in your heart, then then you need to go back to the Lord, um, because if repentance has come, you don't care. Um, just happy. It's mm. good. That's good. You have thoughts? Yeah. Ed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, how faith grows over a, over a period of, uh, of time. Yeah, explain that a little bit more, what you mean. Well, you don't get the faith that you need tomorrow today. Yeah, excellent. Amen. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, the scriptural principles: um, trees planted by rivers of water. You know, not not weeds that just come up or mushrooms. Uh, I mean, Mark used the principle from from Luke of a seed. What's sown, uh, bearing fruit. I mean, these are these are these are pr- scriptural principles that have time periods built in. It's growth. Sanctification happens over, over a period of time. What are the tools of sanctification? How do you grow? The Spirit of God and the Word of God. Those are the two things. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and then, and then builds you up. Um, and you yield to the Spirit and to the Word as that, that happens. And, um, and then that strengthens your faith. Uh, you can put more and more weight uh, on on those things. Give the second one. Kind of goes along with it. We're only going to cover two today. It's another little axiom that I use. Um, truth and trust are cousins, um, not twins. So these are two concepts. Um, that are related, but uh, but not the same thing. Uh, I actually should say forgiveness and trust, not truth and trust. My apologies. Forgiveness and trust. 
Forgiveness and trust um, are cousins, not twins. Now, what do I mean by that? Forgiveness is necessary to build trust, but they don't come at the same time. These first two principles are related. If you don't understand that, you can make some major mistakes in navigating broken relationships. Forgiveness and trust. I forgive you. Nate's going to change that for us. I forgive you, but I don't trust you. Is that possible for a Christian to say about somebody else? I forgive you, but I don't trust you. That's why they're cousins. They're related. Forgiveness and trust are related, but they're not the same thing. They're not twins. Forgiveness and trust are... There's a little bit of separation between them. Forgiveness is necessary in order to trust, so they're related, but they're not exactly the the same things. Um, Forgiveness is a promise to pardon someone. It's not being sorry or apologizing. Forgiving doesn't even mean forgetting. You've probably heard the term, forgive and forget. God doesn't even do that with our sin. What do I mean by that? Because you're probably thinking of a passage where, where it talks about the Lord forgetting our sin. What does he mean? Does that mean that God doesn't have any memory of it? He, you know, he just like doesn't even know that it happened? It's obviously not what it's, it's saying. The Lord doesn't lose information. It means that God does not actively remember our sins against us. He chooses not to hold us, a, uh, hold us guilty for them. And so we, when we're forgiving someone, we actively choose not to hold the sins of someone what they've committed uh, against that person. We, we forego that. Stuart Scott defines forgiveness as the full restoration of a sinning brother who is now repentant. Tim Lane says, forgiveness cancels a debt. Forgiveness is a promise. When God forgives our sins, He does not for, uh, forget that they ever happened. Rather, He makes a promise not to treat you as your sins deserve. Treat you as if they never happened. So when you say to somebody, I forgive you, you're, you're making a promise. You're making a promise... I will not hold this offense in my heart. So it's a promise that you're, you're making with yourself. I will not hold this offense in my heart. It's a promise that you make to the other person. I, I promise I will not spread this around to others. Um, don't share it with others. And I promise I'll not bring this up to you again. So you're making a promise to that person. You've probably had your wife get historical with you. Whenever you, you come to her and maybe you're confessing the same thing, and you confess it, and she says, hold on one second, and she turns over here, and then she begins getting out the luggage from the last five times that we've been in this conversation. She puts that on the table. She gets historical. Um, somebody who's forgiven, you're making a promise not to do that. There is no luggage. It's gone. Uh, I've chosen not to remember that. Chosen not to bring that up again. So if you're, you're bringing it up, 
again, then there's an issue with the forgiveness. Um, and you won't hold any fence. It's not, okay, I won't repay you, but I'm going to remember. Remember you did that the next time. Bring that up again. I say forgiveness is choosing to forgo your rights. That, that person did something wrong to you. So you, you owe them repayment for that wrong, and you choose not to exercise that right. So you do that as a Christian because God chose not to repay the wrath that, that he owed you. So there's three keys to that. I mean, when, when somebody sins against you, they did genuine wrong to you. And biblical forgiveness doesn't pretend that something wasn't wrong, something that was done, uh, you know, wasn't evil. It actually acknowledges that it was sin or, or possibly even a crime. So biblical forgiveness can involve Romans 13. You, you may be forgiven by God, but you may go to jail because you violated the law. So something actually genuinely wrong happened. And then number two, you owe that person a response for that wrong. When someone sins against you, you owe them a response. A wrong was done. So biblical forgiveness doesn't mean that it wasn't a big deal or just say, I forgive you and, and, you know, or I for, uh, and then move on. If someone violates you, there's a debt that they owe and it's rightly required. Think about this from a biblical perspective. We have genuinely done something wrong to the Lord, and He genuinely owes us a repayment. That's the, that's the amazing part of forgiveness. It's not that God overlooks our sin. But those two things are what makes biblical forgiveness so spectacular. God chooses by His own volition not to repay you for the wrong that has been done. And so when you forgive someone else, you freely choose it's your choice not to repay them the wrong that's done. You forgo your rights. When someone sins against you, they did you wrong. You have a right to repay them for whatever that is. And yet you, you don't because you forgo that right. You and I have been generally sinned Against and we've genuinely sinned against God, and we owe Him a debt, and He owed us wrath in response, and He chose on His by His own free and sovereign will not to repay it, and He did that because He poured it out in Christ. And so, when you forgive someone, you're doing the same thing. It's based on the same thing. Jesus Christ, Ephesians four thirty two, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So, when you forgive someone, you're you're doing so in faith. You. You're saying, I choose not to repay them because Christ took my payment instead, and that payment is enough to absorb theirs as well. You let love cover a multitude of, of sins. You're saying, I forgive the fellow sinner because I believe that God has forgiven me, and, and, and that's an exercise of faith. You're also exercising faith by saying, if they don't repent toward God... He will be the one who will repay it in the end. Um, I don't need to bring vengeance because God's promised to. What, well, what about if, if nothing is ever done to them? What if they get away with it? You can understand how unbiblical that, that concept is? Nobody's getting away with anything. 
Um, God will right all wrongs, so it's by faith. Whenever you you obey forgiveness, and it's also very freeing because God promises all sin will be dealt with, even by Christ's cross or or by His wrath. And so, while forgiveness is forgoing your right to repay what someone is owed, trust is not an automatic result of that. Um, I, I don't even think it's I don't even think it's commanded. Trust is the willingness to put weight on that forgiven person again. It could be putting weight on their words if they've been a liar. Somebody's been a liar and they confess to you that they've they've lied to you. Um, You forgive them. And if they come and they lie seven times or 490 times, as Scripture says, you forgive them. You, they've, they've wronged you, you owe them for that wrong, and you freely forgo your right to repay them because Christ has forgiven you more than 490 times. But that doesn't mean that you trust their words automatically, right? Putting weight on their faithfulness if they've been unfaithful. Somebody has got a pattern of unfaithfulness. They're exposed in, in unfaithfulness. And in doing that... You forgive their unfaithfulness. That doesn't mean that you automatically begin to to trust them in in leadership again. Putting weight on their leadership. If they've abused that, you could go on. In whatever area they have a pattern of of sin, if they repent, you're to grant them forgiveness and and the mercy that God granted you, but, but you're... You're not commanded to immediately trust. You do trust God, which is what you're doing in the forgiveness, but trusting them takes time, and it's, it's based on a changed life. I, I can, again, go back to my own testimony. I can remember when Tracy and I were in counseling, going to my pastor, and I can remember Tracy saying to him, I just don't think I could trust him again. He's hurt me too many times, and, and I have to protect myself. I have to protect my own heart. I don't want to open it back up to that kind of, that kind of hurt. And I can remember Pastor Joe looking at her and saying, do, do you believe that, that Brian was, was saved? Do you believe he repented when he trusted Christ? It was about a month ago. She was there. And um, she saw me walk forward. She saw me pray. But that wasn't what, what he was pointing to. She said, yeah, I mean, I, he's changed. There's no question about that. He's a different person, very different than he's ever been. She said, I believe he was. And then Joe said, well, then don't trust Brian, trust God. If she was here, she'd tell you that was like a light bulb moment for us. She, she said she thought to herself, I don't know if I can trust Brian, but, but I can trust God. And if he's at work in him, then he'll do what he promised. He'll complete the work. But it took Tracy some time to watch that work of God being worked out in my life before she felt comfortable to put that trust there. So if you're the one who's been, 
who's violated trust, if you're the person like me who violated trust, then, then you have to be patient. You have to give ample room to prove your changed life. Uh, don't demand what you don't deserve. Don't demand trust when you don't deserve trust. Don't expect someone to think differently about you until your new life proves it. Paul said in first, uh, in Ephesians 4.28, Let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor doing honest work so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Think about that. Let him who stole steal no more. Stop stealing. But rather let him labor. Put off stealing. Stop it. And then do what you should have done. Labor with your hands, doing honest work, putting off, putting on, and then the result, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The ultimate evidence that someone who stole and transformed is not that they just go get a job, but the reason now that they're working is so that they can take that money and share with someone else who has need. You see how that's at the heart level, not just the activity? You're stopping and you're starting to do the wrong thing. But from the heart, the evidence is why I'm doing this. is not for selfish reasons. I want, so I take. I work, so I can give. And that obviously doesn't happen just when you say, ah, stop stealing over a period of time. So stop doing what, whatever you were known for, if you're the perpetrator, and start doing what is righteous, and your reputation will change. Don't demand what you don't deserve. Let her see your phone anytime she wants it. Offer your parents your passwords. Be, be very careful with your words if you have a pattern of dishonesty. And if you don't, then go admit it to, to whoever. You weren't truthful. Voluntarily make yourself accountable in whatever area that, you're sinful, that you were sinful in. And, and if you're on the opposite, you're the one who was violated by somebody else in a relationship, be patient. And give ample room for an unfinished life. Let's say somebody sinned against you. You shouldn't confuse repentance with a rival. Uh, don't think because they've repented they'll never, they're never going to sin against you again. Don't automatically question their repentance whenever they do sin. Um, be wary of patterns. There should be a change that's evident over time, but, but the target is direction. It's not perfection. They're not going to be perfect. Um, people that have been hurt or wronged, I mean, they're, they're, they're leery. They're watching. You might have been in this, in this situation, and you, you've sinned against somebody. Say it's your wife, and, and you've been doing... I mean, you've genuinely repented. You, you're not trying to cover anything. Like, you know, uh, two months has went by, or a month has went by, and then all of a sudden you, you, you sin in this small area. See, see there? I see it. Why is she doing that? Probably because you've had a pattern of, of hurt for a long period of time. She's very sensitive to that. So you be patient. But if you're on the other side, remember that repentance doesn't mean the person not going to sin anymore. They're pointed in a direction, walking in that direction. So look for patterns. Look for a pattern of change or, or lack of it. Um, they're still in the flesh. They'll fall. The difference is they'll hate it and they'll repent again. And if that doesn't work, just remember this. How many times have you asked God to forgive you of the same sin? So you forgive them and build trust. They're cousins. 
you won't trust somebody unless you've forgiven them. But once you've forgiven them, then you're on a path to, to rebuild trust. Um, the third principle that we'll talk about next time is sometimes God has to tear down before he builds up. Um, and the fourth one... All right. Ready? There we go. And the fourth one is don't write a police report while the car is still wrecking. I'll explain both of those next time. Thoughts about forgiveness and trust before we break. Good. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for simple truths that have a profound impact on our lives. Our lives. I pray that you would just keep us, um, help us to to live lives that that are weighty. And Lord, we're all sinners, so falling in small ways or great ways are possible for any one of us. And something like this, I'm sure that. Our minds go to those moments where we, we have done that. So I'm so thankful that you grant us repentance. Help us to form that fruit and to be patient as you do. To remember we stand or fall before you, but it's a privilege that we have to, to show your work outwardly to others. And Lord, when we're, when we're dealing with others, let us be, be forgivers freely forego our rights to repay as you have done for us Um, and then help us to pursue platforms that people can put weight on in our lives and whatever ways we've we've violated and be patient with that and be patient with others to walk in a direction not expect perfection um, but want that direction to come so thank you for these brothers bless them as they go throughout their day We love you in Jesus' name.